Hey everybody, welcome back to the Defend Your Ground podcast by the Blue Ribbon Coalition. Uh, we're excited today, we're continuing a series of our podcast that we've started a few months ago where we invite search and rescue volunteers to come and be an, inter- in an interviewee and a participant in our podcast and tell us some of their experiences related to search and rescue missions. Uh, this podcast series is funded by the Utah OHV program with a grant. And so it's designed to be educational. We're trying to teach you ways that you can be a more responsible and safe uh, outdoor recreation enthusiast. And today we have Bill Wepner with us, joining us as a guest. He is a member of the Escalante Fire and Rescue Department in Escalante, Utah, which is right there on the doorstep of the Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument. Um, He's been doing this for years and years and has been on, I'm going to let him share the statistics, but I know he's been on numerous search and rescue missions. He's a veteran. Uh, This is some of the, I would say the terrain in these Southern Utah deserts is, it's beautiful. It's awesome. It's an amazing place to go have adventures. It's also the kind of place where you could find yourself being an unintended search and rescue mission because things can go wrong and it's, it's a rugged backcountry. It's remote and it's you could find yourself in a situation where you need someone like bill to come rescue you and so he wants to share some of his experiences and some of the things he's learned and some of the things we need to be doing as a community to support our search and rescue volunteers and the things we can do to be more responsible when we're out recreating so bill thanks for joining us uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and what brings you here well thank you ben and thanks for inviting me uh, to give you this opportunity but I've been a 22-year veteran on Escalante Fire and Rescue. Uh, Escalante obviously is right in the middle of the Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument, but we're also surrounded by the Dixie National Forest, and there are state public lands involved in our area. So I think you mentioned, but basically Garfield County, where Escalante is is a city, Uh, 96% of that county is some type of public land. So there's many issues associated with that, not only the amount of tourism, recreational tourism that it generates, but also that really complicates the funding for things like search and rescue, fire, law enforcement, etc. It's a a large county uh, dimensionally. Uh, The towns are all spread out, which adds another aspect to us cooperating with one another when we do have emergency responses. Right. So when you say the towns are spread out, I mean, let's say, I mean, so for people who aren't familiar with Garfield County, I mean, this is right down, you you have Panguitch is the county seat, and then you can cut west on, is it Highway 24 or 12? It's Highway 12. Highway 12 is the east-west travel route. So along that, about every 30, 35 miles will be a small town or city. Of a few hundred people, right? Or even maybe a few thousand. uh, Normally it's below a thousand people. So Escalante has a population of 800 people. Boulder would be smaller. Tropic might be the same size as Escalante. Panguitch is obviously the larger city. Yep. And it's mostly an east-west county. It's a long, skinny one. And what's the what's the highest elevation up near Penguich? Uh, well, the actual 
Panguitch is around just a little less than 7,000 feet. But if you get to Boulder, so you're on Boulder Mountain, you're up in the 9,000. The top of Boulder Mountain is over 10. So yeah. you've got some, some really large elevation changes. And you guys go clear to Lake Powell, which is going to be right now 3521 or something. So, and so you have like really rugged terrain, the highest mountain peaks where you've got snowmobiling going on, clear down to um, desert and river recreation at near Glen Canyon and Lake Powell. You've got the Henry Mountains, right? Or the not the Henry Mountains are on the far eastern side of Garfield County. And and then you have a huge chunk of the Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument. And so you have it all as far as what kind of terrain Utah has to offer. You really can go have any kind of outdoor recreation experience you could possibly want in Garfield County. You've got the Slot Canyons. You've got um, Box Canyons. You've got Badlands. You've got the big tall cliffs, the big tall mountains. You guys have it all. I love Garfield County. And it's, yeah. it's an interesting um, perspective, though, that we also sit right in the middle, so to speak, of the mighty five national parks. So while we were once a very rural, obscure town to get to, the fact that there's so much advertising and Internet information about those national parks it's brought just an overwhelming response of tourism to all of Garfield County. So yeah, all of this adds, I'll use the word complexities, to when it comes to search and rescue or any kind of emergency incident. Yeah, let's talk about those. So, I mean, so if you have that tourism surging into your county, doesn't that create a good tax base for um, having a viable, robust search and rescue department? You, you can say that and you can assume that. But it also adds to risk because yeah. I'm going to teach you a little bit about how you determine risk mathematically. That's so risk is, risk is the product of hazard times exposure. Okay. So you could pick a hazard and, and give it some kind of grading, whether it was, you know, a simple cut on the finger or life-threatening. Exposure, obviously, is the amount of of people that would come into the county or um, whatever that would create more uh, frequency to the to the ha particular hazard. Okay. So Makes sense. you could have a slight hazard and a huge exposure, and that gives you a significant risk. Conversely, you could have a really bad hazard and a small exposure, and it could mean a significant risk. So the fact that we're getting so much tourism which legitimately has just increased and increased since the pandemic, yeah. that, that, that has caused our risk in this county to increase for first responders. Yeah, and that's what I believe. Like it definitely creates more demand for search and rescue right. and first responders. Right. And people think, well, this does bring a lot of economic activity to a community, and it does. But let's talk a little bit about where the first responders' budget comes from. I understand. Maybe I'm wrong, but you guys are part of a county budget, and most counties are funded almost exclusively by property tax. Correct. And so, so in the case of Garfield County, because we have so much public land, and primarily it's federal public land, then you're looking at payment in lieu of taxes, or what's called PILT. 
Yeah, so the government pays you some taxes, the federal government. That's, I'm, I'm, I'm imagining with how much money they spend, it's a big, a big check every year. That doesn't always occur that way. So they're, they, they can be either delinquent or ignore the PILT payment entirely. So we, we would get a piece of that, as would any entity within Garfield County whether it's schools or search and rescue or fire departments or law enforcement, whatever. But that's not as much money as you're expecting. No, I know. I'm, I'm playing a, I'm playing along with you. Like I was, I'm aware of the deficiencies of PILT and I know that people call it pennies in lieu of taxes because of property tax base. And like I live in Washington County where we have big cities like St. George and I know and even that county still struggles to fund its search and rescue department because it you have more people, it increases that exposure like you talk about. But they certainly have a lot more resources than Garfield County does, but probably about the same amount of visitation levels. Uh, maybe a little more. I mean, we have Zion, we have Sand Hollow. Um, but PILT really is an in a, insufficient form of funding. And... You also have like your transit room taxes from the people that stay in hotels and things. But for the most part, a county that's 96% public land is without an adequate PILT program. You just can't have the financial tax base you need to have a fully functional and equipped search and rescue department. And so that's something that I think that those visiting these counties need to take into account. Uh, it's something that I believe publicly we should all be supporting changes to the PILT program where if the federal government's going to own all this land, it should pay full freight for it of what it costs to actually manage it by all the entities that have a stake in the management of the land. And uh, there's like advocates of public land might say, hey, look, the county can manage the county's jurisdiction and the federal should manage the federal, but that's not how it works. They call you when they need a search and rescue mission done. So so let's talk about that a little bit, but I want to start by giving you the broadest perspective. Yeah. And it's it's important to actually see some data. Data is very important in this whole issue of risk management on any kind of public land. Okay. So let's just look specifically at at federal uh specifically what's called national park sites. Understand Mm -hmm. that they're not necessarily national parks. They can be national monuments, national historic sites, national seashores. But it's this this whole broad spectrum of sites managed by the Department of Interior. Well, and by the National Park Service, specifically, not the BLM or the Forest Service. So... The nat- these are National Park Service figures. There's 419 National Park System sites. And as you just said, that doesn't include BLM or National Forest Service lands. So yeah. there's over 32 million visitors each year to those sites. And that number is growing. Mm-hmm. So National Park Service data for the specific year of 2017... They reported six people die each week in those national park sites. And that translates to 312 deaths just in the year of 2017. 
if you look at it over a broader period of time, a 12-year period from 2007 to 2018, they reported a total of 2,727 deaths in national park sites, or an average of 227 deaths each year. Now, with an estimated 3.5 billion recreation visits during that 12-year period, they'll do a little math, and it equates to just under eight deaths per 10 million visits to these park sites. So the Department of Interior seems to think this number of eight deaths per 10 million visits is an acceptable statistic. So I want you to kind of put it into a different, different way of thinking. So think of the old golden arches signs in front of McDonald's. And they would have a little box that said 10 million hamburgers sold. But now they would say 10 million hamburgers sold and only eight people died. That's, that would be horrific. You, You would stop eating at McDonald's. You would think that that's too big a risk. Now that's been averaged across all these 419 sites managed by the National Park Service. If you took one specific site, you could take the Glen Canyon Recreation Area and you looked at the visitation numbers and you looked at the okay. number of deaths, then, then it, would be, it would translate to literally hundreds of deaths for every 10 million site visits. Now, I think it's important to understand the numbers, but does that mean that these sites are unsafe? No, not really. What it means is you need to understand what the risks are, which means educating yourself. I was going to say, you probably have people that are doing not smart things for most of this. Yeah, and that's that's the types of things that people need to take into account now. But these are deaths. It doesn't take into account any of the injuries or lost persons that search and rescue people get involved with. Right. Okay, Bill. So where do we start then? Do, like you say that the your local, these rural backcountry search and rescue departments in these areas with a low tax base need more resources. How do we solve that problem? I, I think a, certainly a good start is for have to have all the people who are these outdoor recreationists understand exactly what's involved in the, in the broadest picture or perspective of search and rescue. So as I was saying, these federal lands, are they dangerous? Well, there are, there are risks associated. They need to be educated to those risks. And that's certainly part of the responsibility of federal land managers or state public land managers for that matter. I mean, that's why uh, we said, do this podcast, to be it, honest with you, is exactly. to educate the users and let them know that there's, you can learn from the experiences of others because nobody thinks they're going to be a search and rescue mission that is that becomes a search and rescue mission. That always is unintended for the most part in the experience I've had interviewing other folks like yourself. Um, but what else were you going to say? What else can be done? Well, are there things that you can do to improve whether it's safety in general or, or actually make some of those statistics better than they are. And I think there are. 
and as we've just agreed, certainly educating the public about it is, is one of the first ways to start. I think one myth that has to be debunked right from the start is that every outdoor recreationist is a fit, well-prepared, and experienced outdoor enthusiast. Okay. You know, I'm sitting in the middle of a national monument that's, that's gotten a lot of attention. But we also have the Dixie National Forest. We're between five major national parks. We have all kinds of wonderful state parks in the state of southern in, in the state of Utah in southern Utah. Is everybody that comes here fit and well prepared? No, you see the whole spectrum of people, and we need to make sure that there's information available, literally at those sites, whether it's kiosks at trailheads or information that groups like Blue Ribbon put out to make sure that people understand what they may be facing. The internet sometimes is our own worst enemy because yeah. people see things and they think it's readily available. If you use the Grand Staircase Monument as an example, the slot canyons attract a lot of attention. People see wonderful photographs and they think that that's just a walk in the park to get to those sites. Yeah. So what not. are some of the popular slot canyons? Spooky is probably the one that gets the most attention. Which uh, one gets the most rescues? Well, certainly Spooky, because again, that's exposure, the numbers yeah, of people okay. going down there. Now, you wanted some examples of specific rescues. Yeah. And again, I have to I have to respect the people and their Absolutely. You know, like keep it anonymous. We don't need to share names or anything, but why don't you give us some examples of things that went wrong where people might have overestimated their capabilities or they underestimated the the challenging the challenge level of the terrain. I mean, what goes wrong in these slot canyons? So this happened early on in the early 2000s. Mm -hmm. And it was a early November evening and we got paged out mm -hmm. for a lost person. All we knew was it was down in the area of Spooky. Um, by the time you mount all the first responders and get down there, which is a significant drive on a complicated road, the Hole in the Rock Road, mm -hmm. it was well okay. after dark. Uh, it was what cold. Is yeah, that's what I was going to say. First of November, what's it like in this area? I mean, what's the elevation? What do you expect? I mean, the desert's going to cool off super fast in November. Yeah, I mean, it, in that that particular evening, it was down in the 30s. So it was dark. You get down to the parking lot, which certainly back in those days was kind of a jumble of areas that people had just kind of carved out on the, yeah. on the desert to park. And here's a Ford pickup truck, nice, brand new looking forward okay and in the back of it was a large tupperware container a rubbermaid storage box got it first responders pull up on scene we're trying to organize exactly to understand you know is there any sign of where the people might have gone you're expecting them that they started the hike to spooky and as we're getting our people together and organized we start to see this large storage container move and lo and behold when we removed the top of it there was a woman inside okay and 
she then explained that uh, her husband and she left the bed and breakfast in Escalante that they were staying in late in the afternoon, drove down to Spooky. They had a disagreement and they separated. He went and continued on the hike and went through the slot canyon and obviously got lost. She returned to the truck, was starting to get cold, climbed into the Rubbermaid container. The person that had reported them missing was the bed and breakfast owner because they they didn't return when they were supposed to. So if you just stop there and look at how could that have been avoided? Well, the bed and breakfast owner could have provided better information on how do you take a hike at Spooky? Maybe that's certainly the wrong time of day to go down there, but you might want to reconsider that given the temperature dropping at night. Yeah. Uh, At least he reported the incident. So we spent virtually the entire night trying to find this individual and couldn't. So we had to bring in a helicopter with a FLIR unit the next day. He made a bad decision exiting the slot canyon, should have turned left and he turned right and he was on his way to Page, Arizona. So wow. he spent he spent the night, an uncomfortable night, but at least he understood to hunker down and try to find some way of keeping warm. Yeah. It's an example and, of something that and, could have been prevented. But it's an even better example of you probably involved a total EMS crew from Escalante. So that's all of our ambulance service. You involved fire and rescue, and you involved a state helicopter. So tremendous amount of expense, tremendous amount of people spending a lot of time for something that could have probably been prevented. Yeah, well, that one does sound preventable. I'd like to point out that it does sound like like one thing people, this grant is partially to talk about motorized recreation. I mean, that was from the OHV division. One thing I like to say is almost all recreation is motorized at some point. I'm assuming most people in Escalante don't get up from their bed and breakfast and walk down to this trailhead. They got there in their Ford pickup truck. Uh, it was an off-road trail. And I, a lot of times, they might not have considered themselves a motorized user, uh, but I do. I mean, they certainly used a motor to get partially to where they were wanting to go. And then the last few miles was the hiking experience. So that's an interesting case of this slot canyon. Uh, one thing I wanted to also add is a slot canyon, you get down in those slot canyons and they're even cooler than the other desert. I mean, you go into a slot canyon in the middle of summer and you might find that it's nice and refreshing and cool. And so to be doing that in November, is this one that also includes like some technical, I've been in some where you need like ropes, you need kind of some ability to shimmy up and down cliffs. And it, was this one of those as well? You, you don't have to rappel into it, okay. uh, but there are people that do rappel into it. And, and again, you know, people are looking for different experiences using different types of outdoor activities. And that whole gamut exists, uh, certainly down here in southern Utah. But yeah. even as you talk about motorized vehicles, I mean, obviously now in the past few years, we've seen a significant increase in the number of UTVs 
that are used by, you know, campers. And that's great. I think that's fantastic. I support that 100%. I think, and all the reports I have, and I spend quite a bit of time, I prefer two wheels, so I'm on a motorcycle. Hey, we, but, fight, for, we fight for the single trackers, too. But, but when I'm out there, and I'm out there frequently, uh, what I see is responsible use. The other thing I see, and I'm just going to interject this since we brought this up, don't underestimate the ability for OHV users to themselves be first responders. What I've always come across is people are always willing to stop and make sure that you're not having a problem. I know I do that as a motorcyclist. If I'm there, obviously I have a little easier way to, to traverse the terrain. Yep. I stay on approved trails and paths and travel routes. But if I see somebody in trouble... I'll stop. I'm not in that official capacity as fire and rescue, but people get high-sided. People take the wrong route. Uh, unfortunately, that's one of the problems with these navigation systems. They think all these roads are shortcuts to page, and they're not. There's a yeah, long big cuts. river that's in the way. Yeah. So, so OHV enthusiasts provide a lot of, of first response themselves. But with this increase, it also provides an opportunity for people that may not be as fit or may have a disability to access areas of the backcountry that they want to see. I, I think that's great. That's part of shared access. Yeah, and we, and we agree with that. We actually have a whole project in VRC called Operation Accessible where we're actually fighting to recognize that Motorized recreation is a form of disability access to give the benefits of outdoor recreation, which we think are our health benefits, their public benefits. Um, they should be available to all Americans who are owners of the public land. But for the purposes of search and rescue, if you're somebody who, like, things can go wrong with the machine, and the machine is giving you an extraordinary amount of ability I don't, I don't care if you're disabled or you're fit or whatever. These machines are really capable. They can get you places you would probably otherwise never be able to go. And I've experienced this myself in my own UTV is your confidence level goes way up in your ability to really get into the backcountry. And that to me is kind of one of those, I don't know if, where that fits into your risk matrix and exposure. But if you're not calculating into the fact that anything can go wrong to anybody and that machine is giving you capability. And if that extra capability was to take away, if the machine breaks down, um, when you're stranded out there in the backcountry, things can go downhill really fast in both a metaphorical sense and maybe even a literal one. Um, have you had experiences where you've had to like rescue OHV users that have just gotten stranded out in places where they uh, things went wrong, something kind of caught them off guard. I mean, what, tell me a little bit about that. I mean, it seems to, like it has to have happened down there. Oh, it, it has. And, and nobody wants to see that kind of accident. Uh, oftentimes, they'll find that there's an opportunity, just like you said, to go a little bit beyond their own limits. And then they'll find that they get ledged up or they just can't traverse any further down the path they've taken. 
And oftentimes yeah. this will be in a narrow wash or a narrow cut. So obviously what they want to do is turn around. So we had an incident several years ago where this was down Alvey Wash, which is a popular area to access the Kaparowitz Plateau. Okay. The people got off the road. They were traveling and went up one of these cuts, and they just dead-ended themselves. So in trying to reverse their course, one of the individuals, there were two ATVs with one operator on each vehicle. One of the ATVs tried to back up and just do a three-point turn in the cut. A little too narrow, got a little too far up with the back wheels up one side of the cut, and it ended up rolling over and seriously injured the, the rider. Uh, we had to go in and carry him out, which is, that's what we do, and yeah. got him to the road, got him into the ambulance, and, and he was life-flighted to, to a hospital. So, so walk through the mechanics of that. I mean, there's a few things that they did right. I mean, at least there was a buddy system, right? Correct. And so going out alone, that's the thing we always talk about is you better be a wilderness survival expert if you're going to go out into any of these areas alone. At nowadays, you probably should have an iPhone 14 that has the satellite SOS beacon in it or a Garmin inReach or something. And even then, it's always going to be better to have another person with you. So it could have been worse for them. But what did, I mean, illustrate what that looked like. I mean, did, was it a, a 10 minute jaunt back to town to get let you guys know what had happened? Was this during a time when they had like an inReach? Or how did you guys find out about this? I mean, what from the point of the accident to the point of when you guys got there? I mean, what what did that look like? You know, on these incidents, sometimes I hate to say luck, but. The luck in this one was it was a time of year when there was a lot of people on that Alvey Wash Road. And I don't mean that it's a traffic jam, but there's at least movement of people back and yeah. forth. The person that was not injured got to the road, contacted somebody that was passing by, and that person <clears throat> came out of the canyons <clears throat> and then made a phone call. Got so it. he reported the incident. And we responded probably within the first 60 minutes. So oh, nice. <clears throat> keep that in mind, 60 minutes, because I'm going to come back to that in a little bit. Uh-huh. We got there early enough that nobody had tried to move him. He, had, he was unpinned from the vehicle, but barely. And we got there. It was off-road, so we took a Suburban in, which is not the best vehicle. Uh but we got the Suburban in close enough that it wasn't that far a manual carryout. And like I said, everything happened to be right time, right place. People, Enough people were there that the, the individual could make a contact and the rescue was successful. Yeah, so I, I try to put myself in this individual's shoes. I mean, we've all been in that position where it's like oh i need to turn around i'm gonna do a multi-point turn and it that seems like just the most common reaction to that problem did this did this person make a mistake like they just i mean you say it was a cut was it just that they were going up and down like a pretty steep bank of the terrain and it just i i think the individual i at one point in my career i was a 
a, uh, an instructor, ATV instructor for the state and uh-huh. for state parks. And, you know, you try to teach people how to make the right maneuvers on a slope or in a narrow area like that. <clears throat> and too often people get impatient because, you know, okay, I got, I got stuck at the end of a dead end. I want to turn around and go back somewhere else. And maybe instead of taking the time and being patient in doing it, they rushed it, backed up a little too far up the slope. Next thing you know, it rolls over. So you have yeah. to, you really have to understand your vehicle. I mean, and I'm not trying to preach to anybody. I love riding a motorcycle. So I practice yeah. basic skills all the time. And that's, that's what people need to take advantage of is, Make sure you take the opportunity to base just basic things with the vehicle. Try some turns, but try it in a safe area where you get a little more experience. Yeah, that's good advice. Um, let's. I want to shift gears. How often do you get called up to the top of Boulder Mountain in the winter? I know that Simone talks about that that's her husband's little snowmobile playground. I know it's not like a destination area for Utah snowmobilers, but if you live in Escalante or Penguich or Boulder or even maybe Bicknell or Tort Lake, Wayne County area, I suspect people get up there on top of the Boulder Mountain area. And have you had any snow rescues that you've had to do up there? I have not personally okay. been involved in a snow rescue. Um, those are difficult and I've had that discussion with Simone's husband, uh, yeah. who's a good friend of mine and a riding buddy. But uh, that that is really difficult. Number one, you need to understand just accessing those areas in the winter is next to impossible. Right. So we, we now have a, a Honda UTV, a Pioneer UTV, that has been outfitted for rescues. So, okay. so we have a complete EMS package on the back of it that we can bring somebody out. We can bring EMS in, we can take them out. So, so we have a vehicle that, could, that can do that. But to get up on top of Boulder Mountain, for example, from Escalante, I mean, yeah. you're talking about a significant trip. I know. And we there. have had, in the summer, numbers of rescues up there. Uh, right. Some, some very complicated. But that, that's what people need to understand. And when I say people, it's both the recreationists and the public land managers that are responsible for those areas. So yeah. just to give you another quick example, this was a, a rescue in the, the fall. This, the Forest Service has cabins that they rent up on the mountain. Okay. And in the Dixie National Forest. So from Escalante, that's about... You know, driving rescue vehicles, <clears throat> that's, that's a good 45 minutes to hour trip. So gotcha. we got paged out in the middle of the night. The people that had rented the cabin, it was a chilly night in the fall, and they decided to put a fire in a wood, small wood-burning stove in the cabin. To get it started, they used Coleman lantern fluid and mm-hmm. just tossed it on the kindling. It backflashed, burned the person that was doing it, and set the cabin on fire. So all the people had to be evacuated out of a burning building. It's chilly. 
we had to take fire engines up there. Uh, it took us over an hour to respond to get up to that particular site. Uh-huh. And basically the building was gone. We, all we did was fight peripheral fires in a defensive mode and then put out any smoldering embers from the building. Then we evacuated all the residents, which included a handful of children. So it's, it's you know, quite the experience to do that. Yeah. But, but here's a classic example. That's a structure fire on natural, National Forest Service land. Forest Service firefighters are prevented by law huh. from fighting structure fires on their land. That's the responsibility of the local fire departments. So we had to bring equipment, two fire engines, this long distance, high altitude, back in a remote area to get to that fire and rescue those people and put the fire out. Do you know why that is? Like, is it just because the government doesn't want the liability or something? I mean, why wouldn't they? Forest Service firefighters operate according to what's called their red book. So it's their rules and regulations. Uh And it specifically stipulates that they're not to be involved in vehicular fires, dumpster fires, or structure fires. They're also not supposed to be involved in rescues. That's what search and rescue, fire and rescue, law enforcement are supposed to be involved in. So, so you mean a federal agency is not allowed to be part of involved in a dumpster fire? That's that's what the rules say. So okay. they're sometimes they are a dumpster fire. <laughs> they're supposed to be focused on wildland fires. Right. Conversely. If you're a municipal firefighter like myself, you're not supposed to be involved unless you're properly authorized and certified to fight wildland fires. So you're, you're looking at these arbitrarily drawn lines between who's supposed to do what. Meanwhile, you have an emergency going on. Right. And, and then the funding comes back into play because if you guys are liable to go put out a structure fire in the middle of forest service land. I mean, that's not a, you know, there's a cost to that. And, and we just, and the forest service just isn't even remotely coming close to playing for it. So what about the national monument? How has that affected search and rescue missions in the area? It's, I mean, search and rescue, let me give you an example. I've talked to a friend of mine who does advocacy work around the Sequoia National Forest in California. This is where the Pacific Crest Trail is. You have the through hikers that go try to hike that trail. And any at any given time, a certain percentage of them are going to tap out or something's going to go wrong and they need to get pulled off the trail. And so you have a pretty extensive network, at least in the parts of that area that aren't designated wilderness where you can get dirt bikes, you can get vehicles up to that trail and attend to people who need search and rescue assistance. And those motorized routes become like really the arteries and the lifeblood of a search and rescue operations ability to really get to a victim. Otherwise you're gonna need helicopters or some other more expensive and often unavailable forms of access. So has the monument let me just see if I'm predicting what may be going on here. The monument's probably created a surge in visitation. It's created a, a, a 
Probably, and it's, I mean, we believe it's created a substantial number of road closures and um, access restrictions. And that's a recipe for disaster if people get into the backcountry of these monument areas and you guys can't get in to help them. Is that happening or what? what's going on with the monument? Yes, it's happening. And I guess the best example is, you know, the Hole in the Rock Road, which okay. is the, a primary access point. Uh, certainly for Garfield County. Uh, it's a road, interestingly, that goes through a little bit of Garfield County, but primarily Kane County. But right. there's no way for Kane County to access their portion of that road without going through Garfield County. So we, we Garfield County, end up spending a lot of time and resource covering the entire road. And that's a cooperative agreement. Yep, that makes sense. Right? But... But there are. That, that site, especially since 2020, has increased in its, the amount of recreational tourism. Uh, it's, it's unbelievable. Uh, during the pandemic, every drainage cut, every flat spot, every stock watering tank area had a fifth wheel or a sprinter van parked on it. Okay. And, you know, we can... Do you know the visitation levels for that road? I mean, I was talking to a BLM person probably in 2018 when they were going through the Trump monument planning process, like during the Trump administration. They were saying that was getting 90,000 visits a year just on Hole in the Rock Road, and that was in 2018. Oh, it's it's increased significantly since then. Okay. So, so it's, you know, it's basically, it's a developed road, but it's still just a basic gravel base. So it takes quite the beating. The county maintains it, mm-hmm. but we're still arguing with the federal government over RS-2477 rights. Right. I mean, that's, that gets to the point of being ridiculous. This, this is a primary access point. So for all of those slot canyons of Garfield County, that's the primary road to get there. If you yeah. want to you know, do a loop, which is a, a popular OHV attraction in the Escalante area, you go down Hole in the Rock, up left-hand call it, and then back through the Alvey Wash or Smoky Mountain Road and get back to Escalante. It, it's a tremendous ride. It's wonderful. It's yeah. beautiful scenery. It's definitely got some technical uh, aspects to it, so it's, it's an exciting ride. But the more you close down or limit access to those roads, you're exactly right. If somebody is in that backcountry, then we have a hard time accessing it. So and, do you have an example of like a rescue incident where you wish you would have had better access? We, we've had a number of those. So they could range from some really tragic deaths that involved uh, a guided group uh, from a motel. So they had guides. The guides were really not that experienced in the conditions of Garfield County. They took them down through uh, the Egypt slot canyons. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, it was raining 10 miles away. And that canyon flashed. And two of the people who were elderly, uh, we lost them. Wow. Okay. So we had a rescue yeah. of the, the group. And we had a recovery of unfortunate victims. We had to take significant amounts of equipment and manpower down there after a flash. So 
the fact that those are really unimproved roads. Could there have been better access? Obviously, where, wherever they went in, you had to look at a much broader area to actually find the people and recover the bodies. So, so better access is always something that we worry about. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously weather is going to have its extremes in Garfield County. I mean, it has it everywhere, but especially somewhere like Garfield County, it, you combine that with the ruggedness of the landscape and you get a serious weather event, that could definitely go the wrong way fast. I mean, what are some other incidents where people were kind of unprepared for the weather? You know, it's primarily the fact that they don't understand that it might be perfectly clear and sunny over the area where you are, but you're in a drainage area. And whether it's a, a wash, we see way too many people camping in washes. You know, it's somewhat flat, it's sandy, it's convenient, it's open. You usually seen it. You're down in like a canyon or something. and Yeah, but... But when it flashes, it's unbelievably traumatic. I mean, it literally can take the vehicle, and, and because of the turbulence of the water, it'll screw the vehicle into the ground. We've had wow. rescues where, in this case, it was a forerunner, literally just got turned around so many times that it became all the way buried in the sand. Okay, that... That's an issue. I mean, we got the wow. people out, but but that person now is responsible for moving removing that vehicle. That's my pager going off in the back. Uh, so hold on, the person has to remove that vehicle. So what? How do they do that? Do they get a bulldozer in there? Or do you get yeah, a bulldozer? I mean, do you get hand shovels and mules? Like no, usually what they do is they have to get someone who's licensed to operate on the monument. And uh -huh. then bring in the appropriate equipment, might be a backhoe, and then they get fined for every day after a certain period of time if that vehicle's not removed. Hmm. So that's a good advice for motorized users and, and everyone in general, but especially if you're motorized, don't camp in those washes. And it's, you hear that a lot, but you kind of think that'll never happen to me, but it's... But There's it's definitely like, been some monsoon seasons just in the last two or three years that have been, I, I mean, I'm suspecting you've had some pretty gnarly cases yeah. just in the last few years. But, but it's an example of how you started off, that there's education that should be taken advantage of. And yeah. whether it's kiosks at the beginning of a trailhead or, you know, at the beginning of an entry point to an area like that, I, I, would, I would love to see much more information provided at the beginning of Hole in the Rock Road or at the beginning of Smoky Mountain Road. Th yeah. Those are two major access points. And you could develop that much better, much more effectively. Yeah. And so aside from those two, I mean, what are some other hot spots within the monument where people should, if you are going to travel into these areas, you should recognize that your search and rescue mission if you become one is going to be already undermined from the start because of where you're headed so in a way and and i'll let's make this ohv oriented 
Mm-hmm. What, what I would like to see, and Blue Ribbon does a good job of this, as does USA All and the American Motorcyclist Association, you know, make sure you get information about the area that you're going to be visiting and that you understand what are legitimate travel routes and what aren't. Yeah. And be, be prepared. You, you need to be prepared to the extent of have some form of communication if you get in trouble. Cell phones are not a good thing because obviously with the terrain and the canyons, you're lucky if you're going to get a signal. Yeah. But the, so the new iPhones have the Iridium signal in them where you can at least put out a SOS distress to the satellite network. And so that's the one, I mean, I actually got one of those iPhones just for that reason, because I'm out in these backcountry places enough. It made sense. Um, One thing we commonly hear about the deserts, these environments, is people aren't bringing enough water. They don't bring shelter or blanket. Like, if you have to stay the night, have you ever had to rescue somebody that had to unexpectedly stay the night out on the desert? Oh, yes. So how does that usually go? Well, again, you know, again, it depends on their concept of preparedness. Um, I gave you the example of a woman who crawled into a Rubbermaid container to stay warm. She couldn't get into the car because the husband had the keys. She tried to break the windows out with a rock and then gave up in frustration and crawled into the container. But, you know, some people will have the appropriate equipment. I, I really don't think people understand. They think this is a desert and that it stays warm all the time. And obviously it doesn't. They don't recognize the impact of humidity and altitude on their fitness levels. So we see that a lot with hikers. They, they're not properly prepared nutritionally or hydration wise. Uh, They don't take any food or water with them, but they're going to go on a three or four mile one way hike. So six to eight miles round trip and they get into trouble. There's elevation changes. They may get lost I think that's another one of the issues in general, whether it's hiking or motorized travel. Make sure that you have really good maps and understand the level of signage that's going to be available for you to use. Unfortunately, and I'm a big advocate on signage, that's very difficult to get public land managers to understand you need to mark routes. Well... I mean, we agree with you, but the biggest reason we find that they don't is because of the challenges we're seeing like from the wilderness organizations. And so we're, we are involved in numerous travel planning efforts in Utah. And there was one area, the San Rafael Desert, where the BLM had released their final plan for the travel plan. We'd identified what routes were going to be open. We There were motorcycle groups, actually, who had organized hundreds of volunteers to come out and put those signs out and so people knew where they could and couldn't go. And then that got, they were en route to doing this volunteer activity one weekend, and then the BLM killed the volunteer agreement in the last minute. They weren't allowed to go sign those routes. And it's because the wilderness group was suing the BLM. They challenged the travel plan. And so it created this cloud of uncertainty over what routes were actually open. And so if the BLM itself doesn't know what routes are open, 
And then they get themselves into a situation where they're caught up in litigation for years and years and years. And sometimes we're the ones also litigating that because the wilderness groups that are enforcing these closures are so unreasonable in how they go about it. And we're there to advocate that there is more access, more trails, and all we believe having more access and trails creates better access for people like you. It's a safety enhancement on public land. Um, but that's why, I mean, it's like they're, they've, they're, they're in this position where they have these processes that actually prevent them from making this into a safe, informative environment to educate the users of where they are and what, where they're going. And that's an incredible frustration for us because we would like there to be the signage so that people are following the rules and safely navigating these, the terrain that is actually pretty formidable and has a lot of challenges kind of baked into the cake. And it, it's nice to have the whole, the management system rigged in your favor instead of working against you, which is kind of what it does now. Exactly. And I'm heavily involved outside of my first responder responsibilities in dealing with the Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument. And you try to get that message across that if you legitimately mapped and signed trails, you would find that responsible recreationists will pay attention to that and they'll they'll live by the rules. We don't need more overland trails on the monument. There's there's plenty of good travel routes that exist that are quite honestly very technically challenging for, for certainly the average or even even more experienced riders. We but, would argue that there are some that have been closed that are oh, valuable to the public and should be reopened. But absolutely. But but and, and we could probably debate all the ways to properly address yeah. off-road recreation in the monument. I think there's wonderful opportunities that should be considered. But then, like you said, they're just, because of the reaction from environmentalist groups, they're just thrown out of the window completely instead of having an honest discussion about them. Yeah, and in some, some ways it is like part of the mission of the environmental groups to have these roads be closed. They want them to be managed like wilderness, and that's a motivation there. But I also think there is this narrative out there that I think is mostly false, because I, I, like you, I've logged thousands of miles in some of these remote backcountry areas, and I just don't see a, an abundance of evidence that there is a lot of irresponsible use happening. And so if you don't put up signage, if you're not educating people, then you're at least creating this remote possibility that somebody will go do something that technically they shouldn't do. And then that lets you perpetuate the narrative that, oh, these people are irresponsible and they're tearing up the place when really the, they're uneducated and the source of that education is being negligent. And the agencies should have a burden of being able to accurately communicate where people can and can't go. And otherwise you kind of start feeding what I think is a false and a destructive narrative for people who value motorized recreation is the managers aren't, like you said, giving them good information so that they can do it responsibly. Cause I, I think most people do want to just do it responsibly in these areas. I mean, so. But the, the, the other aspect of that, that, that needs to be considered is 
Proper signage and mapping also is a tremendous aid to the first responders because then they have some idea of where the person is. And yeah, how to that's a, that is a great point. That people kind of reference where they are so that you guys get there faster. So if you have to like triangulate their position or find them in a helicopter or whatever you whatever way you go about doing that. But, but I want to elaborate even more on the point that you made. The, the fact that these public land managers aren't taking this into consideration, mapping, signing, the fact that OHV activity out there actually is a resource that benefits them because those people can help respond quicker. Yeah. And they it's have a, resources. They have a vehicle. Yeah. They'll usually have surplus water and food. Like When I go out in my side-by-side, -side, I bring a lot of extra stuff with me. If I were to ever find a hiker or somebody who was in distress, I could be a first responder pretty easily. Exactly. You know, it's... And it's the same thing for our ranching community. I indeed. can't tell you how many stories exist where people were saved because a rancher was out there doing what they do for a livelihood, came across the people in distress it. and saved them. So, so here's two wonderful examples of groups of people that make it better on these federal public lands, and yet they're demonized. And that's not right. And yeah, most federal land managers should have an open enough mind to understand the benefits that are being uh, attributed to those groups in helping them manage those lands. They're, they're out there. I'm out there riding all the time. Yeah, no, that's, I appreciate you bringing up that point. So we should probably get to wrapping this up. And so I want to end with a discussion of what is quite possibly the best trail in Garfield County. Uh, there was this group of people called the Burrs who settled Burrville and then they would go push cows down the Burr Trail by Boulder Mountain. And why don't you tell everybody about the Burr Trail and what makes it so great? Maybe let people know a little bit about what kind of people it would have taken to have developed and utilized that trail. It's, it's, well, it's a beautiful trail as you start, first start down it, but it's paved at this point for a certain point until it hits the Capitol Reef National Park. But yeah. it it's a really pretty trail, so you're seeing a lot of variation, big, broad scenery. Um, and then you get to a point where you literally go around a corner and it's breathtaking because of the dramatic elevation change. And you're going to have to take a really complicated set of switchbacks down that Burr Trail, uh, you know, to finally get to the lower elevation, which puts you in a kind of a big, long valley that goes along the western side of the Henry Mountains. So the, the views are spectacular. Uh, it's you got to pay attention, which which yeah. is, again, one of the things that people need to understand, especially if you're in a vehicle. Uh, don't look at the scenery. you got to look at the road. Uh, a lot of people are intimidated by going down the Burr Trail, but it's really a unique experience, and it will then take you all the way down to Lake Powell. Yeah, uh, no, I, that was actually my ancestors that did all that. That's why I was bringing it up. Oh. And, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I mean, 
Have you ever had any rescues on the Burr Trail? Uh, we've we've had we've had a number of issues over there. We cooperate with the Boulder Fighter Fire Department. Okay. So we've we've responded to fires in some of the homes that are along the Burr Trail, uh, and then obviously if people need a rescue or there has to be a vehicular accident requiring extrication, we'll get involved. We've also had plane crashes over there. So oh, wow. Okay. You, you get to see the whole spectrum uh, sometimes. So. All right. Well, I think that's a good good coverage on Garfield County. Um, Bill Weppner, we appreciate you for all you do. Uh, one thing I think that often goes underappreciated is if you're recreating in these areas and you become you need to be rescued. You're, there's a search and rescue mission to help you get out of whatever situation you find yourself in. How many members of the search and rescue team that you're a part of do this full time and are paid? Zero. Zero. We're all we're all volunteers. This is so, all a volunteer run thing. Yeah. Uh, and so people need to. I hope they understand that. That that and hopefully that incentivizes you to be more responsible when you're out there the resources are really thin when somebody comes they're going to come they're going to do it with purpose and sincerity and they're going to give it every I mean, you guys are trained professionals that are incredibly capable you know the terrain you'll be in good hands but it's also a volunteer and i know it's a huge drain on the families that are the ones volunteering to do this and so we should also be supportive of of that constraint and that reality. And if you see search and rescue volunteers when you're in town, thank them for being there and doing what they're doing. Uh, do you guys, I know that when I did this with Emory County that they do fundraising for their search and rescue department. Does your search and rescue department have like a fundraising link or something that we could put in the caption what, for this? What we've, what we've done is we'll have various events Mm-hmm. You know, last year we had a kind of a garage sale, a town-wide garage sale. Uh, this year we're going to have a bake sale. Uh, we do luncheons on the July 24th. So our city requires us that we have all that money goes directly into the city coffers for the fire department. Okay. But we don't do things online. Uh Fair enough. I just thought I'd ask if there was a way we would help you, um, or we'd at least promote it. But um, it, it just—I like people seeing like really how grassroots and organic these search and rescue things are here out west, and it's not like what you'd expect that you'd have this really institutionalized. I don't want to use the word professional because I think you guys are as professional as anybody out there, even though you're a volunteer. But the fact that you're doing it as a volunteer is just a huge credit to you, and it. And my hope is that people just realize that that should create an extra burden that you feel like you should be responsible so that you're not putting a demand on these volunteers because of something that could have been preventable. With that said, I've also heard other search and rescue volunteers say, don't not make that call because you're worried about the burden you might impose on somebody else. If you're in a situation that things are deteriorating and you need help, make that call. Like the, let, uh, right? I mean, I, I, I'd even go one step further than that. If you come into a rural area like Escalante and you're interested in doing something in the backcountry, don't hesitate to ask for 
to be able to communicate directly with someone who is a first responder, whether it's EMS or fire and rescue or search and rescue. We're, we're all available. We're all throughout the town. And take the time to find one and say, this is what I'm thinking of doing. And does that make sense? Am I properly equipped? <clears throat> I mean, I try to take that opportunity when I see tourists in town. Uh-huh. I'll go up and talk to them, you know, just to make sure they're aware of, you know, hey, here's some of the things you need to think about. And I would rather take that time and and help them. I'll, I'll give you another quick example than, than to go out and rescue them. Yeah. We had a young woman, my, my wife owned and operated a restaurant here, and we had a young woman that drove up on a uh, early 70s XR200 motorcycle. Mm-hmm. And her goal was to ride from Escalante to Big Water down the Smoky Mountain Road. And okay. I went out and took a look at the bike and I said, you know, I'm a member of Escalante Fire and Rescue. I'm also an experienced motorcyclist. And I just want to make sure that you're properly prepared and you understand what you're undertaking. The bike, it wasn't clapped out, but it had a rusty chain that wasn't lubricated. It was amazing that she was able to drive a, an XR200 as far as she did. Uh-huh. I helped her maintain the bike a little bit. I gave her all my contact information and I said, I want a phone call when you get to Big Water. And that's what she did. And amazingly, that little XR200 made it, okay. uh, which is a testament to Honda Motors, but you right. know, it was a testament to her resiliency too as a rider. Yeah, well, I like that story. It's a good one to end on that. Be proactive about your own safety. Um, the nice thing about these small towns, everybody knows everybody. Usually they're pretty friendly. They they want to be, well, your guests, they want to welcome you there. It's always been my experience. But use them. They know the area. You've probably spent a huge portion of your life exploring these areas, and you probably know it better than most people that will ever visit. And so people should use you and people like you as a resource, and that is a great piece of advice to end on. So Bill Webner, thank you for joining us. Thank you for your wisdom and your experience. And uh, well, this is the Defend Your Ground podcast. If you haven't subscribed yet, we'd love for you to subscribe to this. And we'll be sharing this around. You can share it with your team out there on the search and rescue uh, team out there in Escalante. And we'd hope you, we hope they find this as a good listen and a good piece of information that can be shared with the community as well. So... Thank you, and we'll catch you all in the next episode.